0: Conversation. I'm Catherine Cruz. Listen. Listen to the lessons the world has learned from Mother Earth. This morning we hear from Elizabeth Becker. She's a journalist, author of the book Overbooked the Exploding Business of Travel and Tourism. Becker is a former correspondent for The Washington Post and The New York Times and also served as senior editor of NPR's Foreign Desk. Her book is about global over She wrote it back in 2013, but she shares her updated insight post-COVID and how other travel destinations are seizing the opportunity to bounce back better, smarter. Becker has the wide-angle global view. She puts into sharp focus the political and economic forces at play, What's the pathway
1: to resiliency? What can Hawaii learn? Pay attention to what happened in the pandemic. It was a big pause. Mother Nature said, this is what's happening. This is what it looks like without tourists. The good part was the environment you just talked about. My gosh, all over the globe, skies were blue. Marine life came back. Endangered species all of a sudden were showing up places. In cities, Residents could finally see the beautiful museums that they never went to anymore, the markets that had been taken over by tourists, the whole lifestyle that had been, you know, disfigured. There's no better word for it, disfigured. Just the things about tourism, for instance, Airbnb, they realized, my gosh, they had turned our wonderful residential communities into these bunch of strangers coming around and, you know, not respecting who we are and what we do. That was a big wake-up call. The other wake-up call was gosh, we really depend on tourism for money. Boy, and is this the kind of economy we want? You know, was 1.5 billion travelers in 2019, then nothing, half a million, you know, as just as we were getting out of, um, from 1.5 billion to half a million. So there are lots of jobs lost, bankruptcies, all that sort of stuff. And as the different places came back to life, some had been prepared to take advantage of the lull. And I mentioned some of the places. Um, above all was the city of Venice, which we all know has been just so abysmally crowded that the actual residents had left. The population was going down. That's the city, the fragile city, the uh, Renaissance, beautiful Renaissance city with no cars. Its whole ecosystem was in trouble. The air pollution from a single cruise ship was equivalent of more than three million cars. And this is an island that has no cars. So Venice had already known what their wish list was. They'd been fighting it for a long time. With the pause, an opportunity arose. For literally decades, they have been trying to get rid of the big cruise ships with thousands of passengers that dock in the lagoon. They would get it past local, they get it past provincial, even past national. But the cruise industry effectively lobbied to keep postponing and forcing it. Finally, with the pause, with the beauty of Venice right there, you had swans actually in the canals. That's unheard of. Clear water. It took the prime minister himself, Mario Draghi, to say, okay, basta. And finally, large cruise ships are not allowed. They have to dock on land. And they put in a couple of other things. A tax on day trippers, which is something I think Waikiki might be interested in. A lot of tourists come and they're, in Venice's terms, they were usually from cruise ships. They come in, they spend less than 100 bucks a day max. Whereas if you spend the night, usually the average was around five to 600 a night. What's the point of hosting these people who have not shown a lot of respect for, for your, um, your home and who cost a lot of wear and tear, so they now have a day tripper tax. Okay, so that's one city. Yeah. Uh, what are the other three locations or destinations that uh, that did something different? Barcelona. Barcelona again, famous. Las Ramblas is too crowded. You can't get into the market. People complain that the drunks are over all over the place. It became a place where brides and grooms would come and get drunk for their bridal party. You know, it's just the list is long. The mayor was elected seven years ago, a Mayor Ada Colau, on a green ticket to tame over-tourism. She's the only politician that I've been able to find that was upfront. this is what we're going to do. So during the pause, when people saw what their city's like again, she was able to put through a complete prohibition on renting out rooms through Airbnb in your own house. She's working on getting rid of a lot of the illegal Airbnbs that are owned by multiple people in our hotels, pretending that they're Airbnbs. But she worked very hard on that. She's close to getting a limit on any expansion of their airport because that brings in more visitors. And she managed to get the 2024 America's Cup brought to Barcelona from the New Zealand team that won. And New Zealand itself was trying to get the cup, but they didn't get it. And the reason she did that was to show, listen, we don't have to make money from these cruise ships. They don't help us. But we can make money from these wonderful things like the 2024 America's Cup because you'll show off your technology. You'll get a different kind of visitor who really respects what they're seeing. And they're refining and discovering how to make their city welcoming to visitors and welcoming to the residents. And finally, she's adding what she calls superblocks of areas of the city that have no cars. So these are bold moves. Yes. And the pause is what you know, is known, especially in Washington, is never let a crisis go to waste. There's always an opportunity. The final one that worked was Berlin. I'm sorry we we're always in Europe, but they've been worrying about this for longer than a lot of Americans. They took Friedrichstrasse, the main north-south road in the city, that everybody had said, we have to leave it open for cars. So they all of a sudden, city blank, they got said, we're just going to do it temporarily and let's see how it works everybody loved it. No cars. So it's not the entire street, but no cars. They've discovered that pedestrian life is much better, that the locals enjoy it now as well as the visitors. Local shops are doing much better than they ever did because people stop and look when they're in the cars they zip by. And they're now expanding these kinds of pedestrian streets in the city. The final story is about Key West. Key West is a small island, as you know, famous for the bohemian lifestyle, the Ernest Hemingway home, but overrun by tourists. During the pause, when everybody saw how wonderful it was without them, they saw their city reminding them of why they lived there. They could walk outside and see their neighbors instead of strangers. Not garbage, not vomit, not, you know, all that stuff that went with it. And the marine life came back. So in 2020, while the rest of us were watching other elections, they passed three referendums that essentially prohibited large cruise ships, period. It had to be small, a couple hundred, 250, I think, and the number of days that they could dock, dramatically reducing it. Everybody was happy. Then the, lo- the cruise lobby, the, the rich owners went to work and lobbied up in Tallahassee, the capital of Florida, and were able to get a bill passed where you had a writer – an essential bill, you add the writer, typical, typical, typical (laughs) scheme, Mm -hmm. that said no locality is able to decide who visits in their ports, meaning Tallahassee took back local control, took it away from them. And Governor DeSantis signed it. And now Key West can't control their own docking. No one else can. And so they're going to have to find a new route. But at least they were ready. At least they tried. And I don't know what else will come, but I know that from my reporting, places in Thailand like the fact that a lot of beaches were cut, mm-hmm. closed off. They've even closed off islands. Parts of India that hadn't seen the Himalayas, all of a sudden, oh, right, we can see the Himalayas. So, so it's, it's interesting, but there's going to be problems trying to, to bring this about.
0: Well, I remember being in France and was there to see Monet's garden. Yeah. And there were, I don't know, 4 to 6 cruise ships in at the time and I could barely, you know, walk. And was very fortunate I felt to get to snap a picture of the gardens without any bodies walking through, you know. Mm. And, but it was it was just so intense with people. Mm. And I interviewed people about the overtourism because it was just it was very sad. And yet on the other side of that I was in China and I saw the Great Wall and I remember just marveling, Oh my gosh, it just goes on forever. And then we were all just kind of funneled into this one area of the Great Wall where you know, we're all packed in and you gotta go through the shops and buy trinkets and mm-hmm. and it was it was it was not very enjoyable and I mm-hmm. just thought, Oh, I wish I had gotten off over there and walked the Great Wall <laughs> when there was nobody there. Yeah. You know, so it's it's just interesting to see I guess how yeah, different cities manage
1: Crowds. Yeah, right? and when you're talking about France, they, are, they continue always to make changes. And I bet if you went back to Giverny, to Monet's Garden, you'd see changes to such a degree that they now require reservations to a lot of places. You cannot just say, oh, I think I'll fly to Paris. You're going to have to have reservations to go to the Eiffel Tower, to go to the Louvre if you don't want to have to wait in lines. I was just there in Paris, no lines for the Louvre. Now, that will probably change by the time I go back, whatever.
0: You know, we've been hearing from Elizabeth Becker, author of Overbook the Exploding Business of Travel and Tourism. She's in Honolulu this week to talk about lessons we can learn from other travel destinations who've taken bold moves to manage their tourist numbers. We'll hear more after this short break.
2: Support for H.P.R. comes from Magnolia Boutique and Gallery in Kahala Mall, announcing an afternoon with Hawaii artist Aloha Demele, noon to 3 p.m. tomorrow. Signed works available, magnolia-hawaii.com.
0: On the next fresh air,
1: our interview with the acclaimed classical pianist Jeremy Dank, a recipient of the so-called MacArthur Genius Grant. Dank has written a new memoir about learning to play, the teachers who shaped him, and what it was like to be a classical prodigy in a world where few kids cared about classical music and some truly hated it. Join us.
3: Beginning this afternoon at 3, following Science Friday.
2: Support for The Conversation comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, which helps Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk shows. Mahalo to contributor Hastings and Pleadwell, a communication company.
0: turn to our conversation with Elizabeth Becker. She's in Honolulu this week to share solutions to over-tourism as
1: travelers rebound from COVID restrictions. Here's Becker talking about developing trends. Another thing that's changed is business travel. You're not going to see anywhere near the business travel you used to have. Businesses discovered during the pause that Zoom is just as good for a lot of those trips. The executives will continue to take their lovely trips, but the average person who would be taking a lot of trips no more and those trips are the ones that are are going to be taken, will be taken with longer time and more work instead of many trips for a single goal at every trip. And that's going to be, I think, a trend, period. Longer trips, fewer trips.
0: Well, we do have to manage our numbers. I mean, that's clearly a, a big lesson that we learned out of this pandemic. And we saw the marine life bounce back at Honama Bay. We saw them shut down Waikiki, one Sunday afternoon, and so you know the, the skateboarders and the cyclists and the scooters and people were walking, and so we got a taste of that, and, mm-hmm. and people enjoyed that. So yeah, I guess it remains to be seen what we do locally if mm-hmm. we take some bold steps and not be so timid
1: and yes. just kind of be overrun and walked over all over again. Mm-hmm. the last few pages of my book, I devoted to Hawaii asking the question, what are they doing about the climate crisis? As you said, it was published in 2013. That's nearly 10 years ago. And I talked to a man named Samuel Lemo, who was in charge of the... Yes, Samuel Lemo. Yes. And he said, well, we're going to protect our beaches. We're not going to allow any new seawalls. He showed me graphs of where they're willing to let these... This can be strategic retreat. There's no way they can save these beaches. But if we refuse to have new seawalls do native plannings, it'll work. So I come back here. In fact, they didn't follow through. Yeah, um, and Sam Lemo just retired from
0: the Department of Land
1: and Natural Resources from that office that was yeah, charged with that. It, but they had hundreds of, of exceptions. So, in fact, wealthy real estate developers, well, new condominiums, homeowners, they all got new seawalls. So it was irrelevant. The politics, as usual, walked in, and I don't know your system very well, but I see a vacuum of leadership here. And usually, when you come in looking at these questions, you say, "So who should I talk to? You know, mayor, governor, da da da." Senator Glenn Wakai was talking at a forum with me. He clearly cares a lot. Some big ideas, and he said it's very hard to get people out of their silos. It's very hard to think big. But in this time of the climate crisis, you have to. You have no choice because the climate crisis is going to destroy what you think you're protecting. Counting all those tourist dollars is going to be irrelevant, totally irrelevant. The Honolulu Star advertiser did the wonderful expose of the way around the seawall prohibition with ProPublica. If, if this keeps happening, you're not going to have the beaches that the people are going to want to come to. And Waikiki will look more like what they call in tourism the sacrifice zone, where you just give it over to the tourists and the locals say, okay, that's not us anymore. And the UN just uh, what, within the last month said, you've got three years, 2025. But there's one other thing that's happened that I, I don't think has quite gotten through with consciousness either is that during the pause, geopolitics changed. We all know what's happening in Ukraine, the Russian invasion. That affects tourism because that was the wealthiest tourists. And instead of going on their yachts and spending all their money, those yachts are being impounded. And it's being totally isolated with sanctions. So Russia's out of the tourism game. Now, I don't believe Honolulu depends on them so much, but a lot of Europe and the Middle East did. What Honolulu and many other countries depended on were the Chinese. And you've noticed they're not here.
0: Yeah, and the Japanese, right. our markets particularly, particular, yeah.
1: But Chinese is the ones that's changed in terms of geopolitics. Japanese are coming back, there's no question. And you can see the the beginning of it. But China, during um, the crisis, they had zero COVID, closing off the borders. But also Xi Jinping, the Chinese leader, said he didn't like the idea of Chinese going outside of China and getting their minds corrupted by these foreign ideas. So he, so far, and I'm not sure how long they're going to keep this policy, they're not giving passports to people to go overseas for leisure. They have so far given only 2% of the number of passports that they gave in 2019. All the money for tourism is going to beef up the, their domestic and keep Chinese in China. And you see this in the internet, the information has to be Chinese- Um, censorship, the the great firewall. So you now have this peculiar situation where two of the biggest countries in the world, China and Russia, China is self-isolated, Russia is isolated by the rest of the world. Uh, It's echoes of Cold War, to put it mildly. And um, it's going to change the game. I can't tell you you how. But without that cooperation, we go back to the climate crisis. And I see you're, you're having a problem with rain, Yes. Drought. I don't know if you have wildfires, but in mainland United States, it's been jaw dropping.
0: We we talk about Earth Day, you know, as we market this week and to think about the economy and the decisions we make, you know, the policies that we uh, we enact uh and how that's gonna shape mm-hmm. how we get out of this pandemic and then our future ahead.
1: What I find, and this is encouraging for me, opt- makes me optimistic, is that the the policies that have been adopted that, that work in terms of taming over tourism, they're the same thing that works at helping reduce climate problems. And so I think for particularly a place like Hawaii that is so tourism-oriented, just think, okay, I'm not trying to destroy tourism. I'm trying to protect this the whole planet but particularly Hawaii with these options that will protect our environment protect our landscape and at the same time show that we're responsible for our role in reducing emissions and and wow. climate crisis and, and it, it helps you be resilient and that's another thing that uh, that is a new issue in in tourism because during the pandemic they realized they're not resilient and we're not going to have another pandemic, but you get whacked with a tornado or a hurricane. You have to be resilient yeah you've got to bounce back, you've got to bounce back and you have that means you have with you have real allies in your whole community. you have to get out of your silo, so I guess yeah,
0: as we think about Earth Day and the consequences of our actions or inaction mm-hmm. uh, and uh yeah, Hawaii has to hurry up and and make it make some decisions here pretty quick because yep. the tourists are coming back
1: are they ever yeah.
0: <laughs> We have been listening to a conversation with Elizabeth Becker, journalist and author of Overbooked, the Exploding Business of Travel and Tourism. Becker is a former correspondent for The Washington Post and The New York Times and also served as senior editor of NPR's Foreign Desk. Regenerative tourism. It's a phrase that you hear a lot in Hawaii these days. The Hawaii Tourism Authority uses it, and so does the Native Hawaiian Hospitality Association, or NAHA. Malia Sanders is the executive director of the group, and she recently talked with HPR's Bill Dorman about what regenerative tourism means. Not just a definition, but also the context behind the phrase.
4: Just to sum it up, the core of what regenerative tourism is, it is sustainable tourism, but adding on to it, A couple more caveats, one being that it really does involve community and community needs to be the driving force in moving the process forward. The other is that it includes the host culture. And for Hawai'i, we're really fortunate because there are many places around the world that want to practice regenerative tourism, but they don't know themselves the way we do here in Hawai'i. They don't have that really deep and strong connection to their culture like we do and so it puts us in a place where we can really think about it a place to start we have everything that we need the foundation is here as a place to start and we can start taking actions in the regenerative tourism model to actually pivot ourselves and then follow through with that pivot
5: a lot of what you're talking about is a a spirit to be brought to a situation
4: it certainly is part of a mindset shift but it also is going to require legislation and support by stakeholders and just changing the way that we do business here in Hawaii. How do we promote circular economy better? How do we solve the problems of our housing crisis? How do we eliminate the impact of short-term vacation rentals? They're all part of things that we need to answer in order to say yes we've solved the problems of tourism and yes we've moved into this regenerative model but we're in that pivot these things are already happening around us and it's just a matter of giving it the time that it needs and putting the right people in place making the right decisions and then following through on those things and making sure that they're the right decisions for our place and for our communities because if our communities don't benefit from tourism at the end of the day then and we're really not doing it right.
5: And how can people best get on board with that? Best best become aligned, alignment is a better word, I think.
4: Well, I think it's it's also about educating yourself, I think. So many times even in my own in my own professional circles, we have conversations about regenerative tourism and Maybe not everybody understands what that means, or if if they do, maybe they don't understand the context, the context in which Hawaii is trying to achieve that, because regenerative tourism does have a a definition. However, the way that you apply the principles of regenerative tourism is going to be different from destination to destination, depending on the community that is involved and the culture that that you are you're in. You know, so it's going to take. A lot, a lot of time and a lot of patience and a lot of collaboration. But I think educating yourself about what that is and talking with people about different ways we can make it actionable. Because, you know, NAHA is certainly doing our part, but there are many other organizations out there working on regenerative tourism, doing it in a different way. We all have the same end result that we want, and we know what methodologies work. And so, you know, we just have to continue on with that path.
5: And you have resources that are open to the general public. What, we do. What, are, what so are some of this?
4: This year we took, we took a hard look at our website and we said, you know, if people are coming to Naha.com for information, then we have to have the most up-to-date information available to them. Because if we really want them to be able to educate themselves, there has to be some place where they can go. And so we started collecting different parts of regenerative tourism, you know, free resources that are accessible to the public that maybe are out there, but people don't know how to find it. And so we put them onto our website. If you go to naha.com slash malama, you'll find all of the resources that have to do with regenerative tourism. If you go to naha.com slash olelo-hawaii, you'll find all of the resources that are relevant to learning Hawaiian language. And so collecting these places of reference has been an important part of having healthy conversation about regenerative tourism, but also giving the average person the opportunity to learn about it in a safe way that they don't, they don't feel like it's a stupid question. Because it's never a stupid question. You just have to ask. And then we can talk about it and then we can figure it out together. There are so many community groups right now actively working on regenerative tourism projects and they don't even know that they're doing that. So how do we wrangle those people into Not just NAHA, but the Hawaii Tourism Authority on their website. They have kuhawaii.com slash malama. And there's a bunch of resources there about regenerative tourism too. So everyone in the industry has a part to play. And if we can all collectively work towards that, I think we have a pretty good shot at figuring it out.
5: How would you like to see the community engagement piece of this move in the next, I don't know, year or so?
4: I think it's really important that we as citizens of our place hold ourselves accountable to doing things like that. Like going out on the weekend with your family and choosing something that really gives back to your place. Or visiting another place and choosing something to do that benefits their place. You know, as as local people, we travel between the islands quite a bit. And when we're there, we're we're visitors of that place. And if you think of it that way, then what can I do when I'm on a different island, when I'm visiting friends and family? What can I do to give back to the place that I visit? Because I've enjoyed it so much. You know, my time here has been so precious and I want to be able to give back. And how do you do that? There are so many ways you can make donations to different Organizations that you've got to experience while you were visiting, or you can actually go do an experience. Go, go spend time with kupuna organizations. Go, get yourself dirty in the lo'i. You know, like get your feet wet, and like you'll find that these things are actually make you feel really good too, and they make you f- make life feel purposeful and intentional, and they're they're good for your soul at the same time.
5: Are there things that? can be done to encourage visiting tourists from elsewhere to engage more deeply?
4: Oh, most certainly. And we're seeing a lot of the stakeholder partners in the travel industry um, take responsibility for that too. I I know that there are certain airlines that have in-flight videos about respectful visiting. I know that there is also campaigns that go out to anyone that's purchased a ticket X many weeks out. That they're being engaged already about how to be a respectful visitor and here's the suggestions on things we'd like you to do while you're here here's ways to give back and the thing is like our visitors that are coming they're wanting that they're wanting it anyway let's give it to
0: them that was malia sanders executive director of the native hawaiian hospitality association talking with HBR's bill dorman about regenerative tourism you can learn more about community resources that the group provides, from cultural training to Hawaiian language lessons, at its website, naha.com. That's N A H H A.com. This is the conversation on statewide member supported Hawaii Public Radio. Now it's time for your backyard quiz.
6: Onihoa, Olehua, Onihao, Okawa, Oa, O Moloka, O Lana,
3: O O Hawaii.
0: In honor of Earth Day, today's backyard quiz centers on the natural world and efforts to protect it. Due to the geographic isolation of the Hawaiian Islands, there are dozens of unique species here found nowhere else on Earth. These flora and fauna are often vulnerable to predation, disease, and extinction from non-native influences. As a result, many of Hawai'i's endemic species are also endangered. If you were to look at the long list of endangered species found in Hawaii, you might notice... That it contains only two mammals unique to our islands one is the hawaiian monk seal the other is the hawaiian hoary bat or the opea pea. its hawaiian name means half leaf and refers to the outline of the bat's body some say it's like the shape of a traditional hawaiian sail others say it's like the half leaf of a revered plant for today's backyard quiz do you know the name of the plant with leaves that have a similar shape to the hawaiian hoary bat Call 808-941-3689 or 877-941-3689 if you know the answer. The first one to get it right gets a reusable tote bag and tells people you got it right.
2: Support for the Backyard Quiz comes from Nareed Hawaii, which is committed to supporting nonprofits dedicated to strengthening family relationships, such as parents and children together. Nareed
0: our attention now to the waning days of the legislative session for our reality check honolulu civil beats government reporter kevin dayton joins us this morning hi kev hi
7: captain happy aloha friday
0: happy aloha friday hey so <laughs> where are we at Have we gotten into committee hearings yet um, conference committees
7: we have um, some of them. Some of them have started, but it, it appears that maybe the budget uh, negotiations are running a little behind schedule, and so uh, we're getting into the the last days of what should be conference committee, and things seem to be moving maybe a little bit slower than normal. Uh, there's still time, but we are kind of watching the legislature play out the, the final days where they're making the final decisions in uh, the rest of this week and next week.
0: Okay, so it's the budget that's sort of jamming things up, huh?
7: So it appears, yeah. I mean, there were some problems early on with the Senate draft of the budget, and it looks like maybe it's sort of slowed things down a bit, or perhaps they're having very difficult negotiations. That's all done behind closed doors, so it's very difficult to know exactly.
0: And your story today talks about funding for the Department of Human Services, right, the Child Welfare Services Division.
7: Correct. You know, with us in the closing weeks of this year's session, um, some members of the House and Senate are pretty disappointed that they haven't heard more concrete, coherent plans for to fix the problems with uh, child welfare services system. Um, the Wamanawa community was appalled at accusations last year in the disappearance and, and, and alleged murder of six-year-old Isabella Kalua. Who was reported missing from her Wamanala home on September 13th. Now, her body has not been found, but her adoptive parents, Lehua and Isaac Kalua, have both been charged with second-degree murder, among other things. And anger at this case, you know, even prompted some threats to child welfare workers. There's a lot of uh, discontent with the system and, and with the way it was working and the way that it was perceived to have failed uh, Isabella in this particular case. So the legislature has been asking Department of Human Services this year, what can we do to help? Uh, you know, what do you need? And it's interesting to point out that this is an unusual situation in the state government because the state has a huge budget surplus this year, which is not normally the case. There's money that could be used to fix these kinds of problems. But in budget hearings earlier this year, the department announced that it wasn't going to be asking for more money to hire more social workers, which puzzled a lot of people.
0: And so I understand, though, that the the department does have vacancies, so they can't even fill those slots.
7: That's exactly right. And and that's basically what the department is suggesting. The department said that it believes it has enough positions, but it needs to focus on recruitment and training. So the department has a 20% vacancy rate, it reported in January, that it had 87 vacancies out of 400 positions. And because social workers, you know, that's because oh, social workers often quit these jobs. They're incredibly stressful. You know, however much you criticize child welfare, you have to understand that you know, these are brutal jobs with with people investigating, you know, accusations of child abuse and neglect, and and the threat hanging over families' heads is is the removal of their children and placement in foster care. You can imagine that the kinds of scenarios that they encounter. So these, you know, some some social workers say enough. You know, they move on to some other job, and that's totally understandable. So. House Finance Committee Chairwoman uh, Sylvia Luke suggested that the department might want to increase pay for the social workers so that they'd be more likely to stay on the job, but the department said that the workers aren't leaving because of pay. They're leaving because of that stress that I just mentioned. And the department did say that it's looking to create a pay differential for at least some CWS jobs, but it it wasn't going to make a specific proposal until next year. Of course, as I mentioned earlier, there's money now. I don't think any of us knows whether there's going to be a bunch of extra money available next year. And so that raises the question of, you know, are you missing an opportunity here?
0: Yeah. And the caseloads are just staggering for a a lot of the folks that are in those jobs right now.
7: Yeah. The the earlier the testimony earlier this year was that the ideal is that there would be maybe a dozen caseloads. or That's about the average. But in some cases, there's 25. They they appear to apparently what they do is they For more senior uh, caseworkers, and those are the most valuable ones, of course, because they have the experience and the know-how, they tend to get more cases piled onto them. And as vacancies crop up, guess what? That increases the caseload on everybody. Um, And therefore, that inevitably affects the services that are available to children and the supervision of families. That's a problem. And all of this hasn't sat well with the the legislature, which has pushed ahead with proposals of its own. We have Lisa Martin, who suggested, uh, Representative Lisa Martin, who represents Wamanalo, who suggested that, you know, maybe the department should be making checks on adoptive families, which it currently does not have the authority to do under state law. Um, There are some constitutional issues that have been raised about that. So it's not clear whether that that is going to make it through.
0: Yeah, lots of uh, heavy issues here. So we'll watch to see uh, how this uh, gets through um, in these remaining weeks. But thanks so much, Kev.
7: Absolutely. Thank you.
0: That was reporter Kevin Dayton with today's reality check. Uh, To read his story, visit civilbeat.org.
2: Support for HPR comes from Broadway in Hawaii, presenting Beautiful. The Carol King musical, including You've Got a Friend and Natural Woman, now through Sunday at the Blaisdell Concert Hall. Tickets at broadwayinhawaii.com.
3: The final round of French elections is on Sunday. The future of the French economy and its role in Europe is under the microscope. I'm Amy Scott, Macron versus Le Pen, next time on Marketplace beginning this evening at 6, following All Things Considered.
2: Support for The Conversation comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, which helps Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk shows. Mahalo to contributors, Bavarian Motor Experts, and Shamanad University.
0: United Nations Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, the IPCC, recently released its sixth report on global warming. The panel first sounded the alarm on global warming with its initial report back in 1990, 20 years after the first Earth Day. Scientists say that without immediate and decisive action to stave off carbon emissions, billions of people will face the consequences of climate change firsthand. But there is some hope. The panel's report gives us a roadmap to get there. The conversation Savannah Harriman-Pote follows up on on possible solutions to get one climate uh, consequence,
3: coastal erosion as a result of sea level rise. There's a lot we can do to fight climate change. Electrify the grid, compost our food waste, manage our forests sustainably, plant a ton of kelp in the Atlantic. And all these things can go a long way in warding off the worst impacts of global warming. But there's one battle that, at least in the long term, we've already lost. That's coastal erosion. To try to understand the scale of this issue, I spoke with Dolan Eversole, a coastal geologist and extension agent with the University of Hawaii at Manoa's School of Ocean and Earth Science and Technology.
6: We're going to lose, absolutely. There's no question about that. It's just a matter of your time frame. We're going to have to learn how to adapt and accommodate water in different ways. There are lessons to be learned from all over the world, um, Northern Europe and you know the Netherlands and places like that they 're doing a good job of adapting to water rather than fighting water, um, but in the short term in the mid short and mid term, I think we have an opportunity to rethink how we our paradigm of land use and so one of the things that is pretty widely recognized now is our coastlines in Hawaii were largely developed. A generation or two or even three ago and now we're seeing the legacy effects of that what we now recognize was inappropriate development too close to the shoreline we're kind of stuck with it it's really hard to resolve that once it's there but it doesn't mean that it's impossible to adapt some of that
3: so the water is coming that much we all know and our infrastructure may have been built too close to the shoreline to begin with that's not ideal But what is the best response? One solution that we've relied on so far is called shoreline armament or the building of a barrier between the beach and whatever you want to protect, say a highway or a private home. Eversol says while it makes sense that we instinctively want to build something to stop the water, seawalls aren't our golden ticket.
6: So the problem associated with building shoreline armoring and structures is that it essentially dooms the beach if you're on a chronically eroding shoreline under those conditions when you put in something to stop the erosion what happens is it interrupts a natural distribution of dune sand what would have normally been eroded from the dune into the beach to supply itself is now stopped that's one mechanism the other mechanism is the accommodation space or just the the space on the beach in that shoreline area for a beach to naturally form is reduced. So the shoreline is moving landward and the seawall is fixing that landward boundary. So it eventually pinches out where there's no more beach. And we can point to a number of places throughout the state or the world, for that matter, where this is in fact occurred. A glaring example of this is Lanikai on the windward side of Oahu. Lanikai Beach used to have big, wide, sandy beaches from end to end. There was erosion that occurred. Landowners responded by building seawalls. In that case, in many cases legally, and those seawalls were not the original cause of the erosion, but they're a symptom of the erosion and have resulted in the loss of the beach because the shoreline came to the seawalls to now where they're just wet seawalls. There's in many areas of Lanikai, the majority of Lanikai is now wet seawalls and there's no beach left.
3: In order to protect beaches, the state has made it difficult, and in some cases nearly impossible, for an individual to get a permit to build a new seawall. But these leave residents of shoreline communities in a bind. How do they protect their homes?
8: The tough pill to swallow, from my perspective, is for a homeowner being told, you cannot do anything and we got no plan for you. Good luck.
3: (laughs) That's Doug Cole, who grew up at Rocky Point on Oahu's North Shore. Community members on the North Shore are no strangers to coastal erosion, but the conversation about it took on a new tone when last month a house at Rocky Point literally slid off its eroding foundation and onto the shore below.
8: Right now, the policy is don't do anything to protect your property. You cannot do anything. (laughs) And if we catch you doing anything, we're going to fine you. And and then a house falls into the beach, you know? And, and that owner did exactly what the state has asked of all these other owners who are ignoring the state and and piling boulders in front of their properties illegally. You know, this owner whose house fell into the beach a month or two ago, you know, they they did nothing. They, they, they did what the state has told them, don't do anything, and their property fell in.
3: Now, Eversol says the idea that there is no plan isn't exactly true.
6: There actually is a coastal erosion management plan. It was conducted by the state DLNR back in 1999. So it's a bit dated and there's recognition that that plan needs to be updated, but there is a plan and it talks about all these things, how to manage erosion. It talks about engaging the university as a partner in developing the science the state and the university have in fact done that there's agreements that have been made for research and so forth the program i work for the university of hawaii sea grant program actually has a partnership agreement with the dlnr to have a geologist in-house that's employed by the university but located in the dlnr to help advise them review permits and things like that a technical resource for them so those are all things that identified in this coastal erosion management plan but Doug is right, there isn't an adaptation plan, and while there is money that is in the state budget to go to the university to do an erosion study uh, and an engineering-based study of the impact of these geotextile blankets or what are being referred to as burritos along the shoreline, that is not a plan. That is uh, simply an engineering study to look at what's the impact, what could be done differently, There is um, a mention in the bill um, associated with that funding to develop a beach and dune management plan. So it's another thing that that's low-hanging fruit in my mind is we need to develop adaptation plan is longer term and a beach and dune management plan is really immediate. What can we do right now to buy more time? Is sand pushing okay? Is it not? Can we bring sand in from somewhere to you know, buy some time, maybe it's a temporary solution. But I think Doug is correct in saying that there is no funding available for development of an adaptation plan, nor is there any funding available for land acquisition at this point.
3: Land acquisition, or the idea that the state would buy out residents with coastal properties, is another approach. But Cole says the economics aren't exactly clear. Take that house that collapsed at Rocky Point, for example.
8: If you were going to buy them out, do you you pay them at, at their value before the house fell into the into the beach or do you pay them at the value after it fell in? If the policy is you can't do anything to protect your property, you're setting yourself up for a lot of litigation, probably from property attorneys out there.
3: One thing is clear. Erosion will continue and houses along the coast do face increased risk. We need to get out of the way of the water. But will the government actually require people to move? North Shore resident and law professor Denise Antolini says that should be an absolute last resort.
1: Government
0: condemnation is certainly not the first option. The, the best option in my own personal view is offering incentives to homeowners that are willing to move in, in a phased way so that um, we can retain our community fabric and our public trust resources and the homeowners have a place to go back to and enjoy.
3: When it comes to coastal erosion, Eversoll and Antolini say that no matter how difficult and frustrating it is, residents need to keep having conversations about what they want to do.
6: You know, Doug pointed to this is landowners that are faced with erosion are desperate. They're put in this untenable situation where you're not allowed to protect your property, You don't have room to retreat. Like you're on a small lot. You can't move your house. There's nowhere to move it to. You've financially committed to this property. And I think it's unrealistic for us to think people are just gonna walk away from these properties and let the house fall in or move the house and let the entire property erode. What a landowner can do at this point would be get informed, talk to your neighbors, start to think about regional strategies. If you can include your elected officials, Council members and legislators for the district and start to get them involved with, hey, we want to form a special district here, for example, and we think there's merit to having a special district that can help inform the process, maybe even start to come up with funding mechanisms to assist landowners, either physically with like hey we're going to create a special loan incentive that allows you to move your house or buy you out or other, you know, the things that we've talked about, like land buyouts and swaps and things like that. We need more community involvement and we need more regional representation. If we're talking about a given community, did the majority of landowners in that community agree that that's the right approach? And if so, then we can really start to develop adaptation strategies with the support of the community. Without the community support, it's going to be really difficult it's going to be more of what we've been doing which is these reactive you know desperate measures this there is no plan and there's really nothing that a landowner can do but if there's agreement from the community as a whole then that really helps to accelerate the whole process
0: are you willing to consider these options because honestly if someone is not willing to move they will Uh, end up bearing the consequences of the eroding coastline on a personal level. And it'll be tragic. That was a conversation Savannah Harriman-Pote speaking with law professor and North Shore resident Denise Antolini, coastal geologist Dolan Eversall, and Doug Cole, an officer of the North Shore Community Land Trust, about how to adapt to coastal erosion. In today's backyard quiz, we asked you about one of two endangered mammalian species endemic to Hawaii. Hawaii is home to around 100 endangered species of both plant and animal, of which only two are mammals. One is the playful Hawaiian monk seal, which is frequently seen snoozing on sandy beaches throughout the state. The other is one of the world's larger bat species, the Hawaiian hoary bat or the opeapea. It's found on all the Hawaiian islands, though it does not breed on Ihau or Kaho'olawe. It's an insectivore feeding mainly on moths and bees, beetles, capturing and eating their prey while still in flight. They're nocturnal hunters, usually searching for food just before sunset and returning to its nest just before sunrise. Its Hawaiian name, Opeapea, means half-leaf and refers to the outline of its body because it's shaped like half a taro leaf which is the answer to today's Backyard Quiz. But we had no winners today. So that's the quiz. If you have an idea for one, send it to talkback at org. That's it for this Aloha Friday. Coming up next week, we plan to check in with the state's homeless coordinator, Scott Marischage. Do you think our response to the homeless crisis is working? Call our Talkback line. Record your two cents. That's 808. 792-8217. 792-8217. The conversation is produced by Savannah Harriman-Pote, Russell Sobiono and Lillian Song. Our backyard quiz theme, thanks to John DeMello. Our Gypsy Jazz music, courtesy of Gypsy 808. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us on Monday. Pick up the conversation.